0: New Year's Eve in Scotland. It includes lots of time-tested rituals for good luck.
1: And you open at the strike of midnight, you open your front door and rush through and open the back door. So you're welcoming in the new year and letting the old year out.
0: Coming up, we borrow a few European customs for welcoming the new year. When choosing a wine for your festivities, you'll find Spain is commanding more shelf space.
2: Spanish wine for years was really in the back seat and Italian and French wine have always been quite well known. But finally, over the last two and a half decades, Spain has basically profited, unlike no other nation, in the wine scene.
0: And while filming a documentary about the ancient world of Alexander the Great, David Adams found modern travel to
3: parts of Central Asia could be a challenge. Turkmenistan is a case in itself. It's like a time capsule, very beautiful, and I would encourage anybody to travel to Turkmenistan because it is fabulous, but it it is different. There's plenty to explore in the
0: hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. He didn't expect to find evidence that would redefine the legacy of Alexander the Great. But when David Adams filmed his journeys into rarely visited territory in the stands of Central Asia, the world of the 4th century B.C. started to come into focus. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we travel in the footsteps of Alexander the Great. We'll also get expert advice for including the great wines of Spain to make any occasion more festive. Let's get ready to welcome in the new year European style, We'll get our annual visit from friends from Edinburgh in just a bit to hear about the rituals that greet the New Year in the land of Auld Lang Syne. Let's start our holiday check-in Scandinavia-style with Marita Bergman in Stockholm. Marita, Happy New Year.
4: Thank you. Happy New Year. How
0: do you traditionally and typically celebrate the New Year in Stockholm and in Sweden?
4: New Year, uh, that's an occasion for making party. Yeah. If uh, Christmas is uh, celebrated in the family, uh, new Year's is uh, celebrated with friends. With friends. Yeah. We all, of course, organize a good meal. It uh, very, very often contains of uh, seafood, crab, fish. Uh, a lot of wine and champagne.
0: Wine and champagne. Yeah. More than the traditional Akavit.
4: Yeah. And- we look in the television and also talk with our friends. We are, are talking about the past year and uh, making up also new goals for the new year. And 12 o'clock... When you are going out, seeing the firework, which is taking place all over, you shall predict your own new year by telling and promising wishes for the new year.
0: And on the very first day of the year, Americans gather around with their families and watch parades on TV and watch the uh, football games. What do the Swedes do?
4: Take a long morning before they take their strong coffee after a, a night celebration. Watching TV, there is always competitions in skiing going downhill, and then is also the concert from Vienna.
0: Well, that's interesting. So all over Europe, then, or in much of Europe, they would be celebrating it in a similar way, enjoying a traditional concert from Vienna yeah. and ski racing in the Alps with many nations participating. Yeah, feeling a little groggy after your last night's party.
4: Uh, we need the coffee, yes. We need the coffee. Yeah, thanks a lot. God nytår.
0: God nytår. Yes. Marita Bergman from <laughs> Stockholm. Happy New Year. <laughs> for a look at New Year's festivities in the capital of Croatia, we're joined now by Marjan Krskovic. Marjan, what do people in Zagreb usually do to get ready for the New Year?
5: Well, people are getting ready. They're just uh, relaxing after the heavy meals the Christmas holidays brought with them. And uh, they're going to replace the uh, more spiritual experience of Christmas and get ready for the big New Year's party. And then what happens? People bring out uh, champagne, there are big fireworks, and of course at midnight everything goes crazy. Does everybody just collapse the next day or are there family festivities
0: on New Year's Day or in America we all watch football or watch a parade on TV? What happens?
5: New Year's Day, one of the memories that I always have connected with it is waking up the following morning and you're waking up by the tunes of the uh, concert from Vienna. And most people just tune into uh, the first program of Croatian television that has live transmission from Vienna, a close connection to the Central European culture. You celebrate European culture on channel number one, Croatian <laughs> right. national <Yes>. TV, <laughs> listening
0: to the Vienna Philharmonic. Yes. There is a sort of a, a funny reason you have gifts that are given on New Year's Day, actually, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Croatia. Mm-hmm. How do you manage to get gifts on New Year's Day when uh, most people just get them on Christmas?
5: <laughs> well, uh, in the past, in the uh, times of communist Yugoslavia, they tried to put the two holidays blend together in people's heads. So they replace Christmas with uh, New Year's. Oh,
0: because the communists didn't want Christian holiday. Exactly. Okay, so if you got to keep the holiday. That's right. They want weren't to put it in something more atheistic. Exactly. New Year's Day, is there some sort of a gift giver? What happened to Santa Claus?
5: Santa Claus gets replaced as well. He's called uh, Died Mraz, which translates to Father Frost. And when you get together, all the family, all
0: together, multi-generation, are there any traditional foods? I, I know you've got uh, Sarma. Uh, Tell
5: me especially about that. after a lot of the heavy foods from the Christmas season, you want something to clear up your stomach. And one of the good foods is sarma, which is basically these cabbage rolls filled with uh, mincemeat, cabbage soup, so something sour to bring out all that heavy food and alcohol. And so just... you're getting off on a better footing here. Exactly. You're, re- you're surviving <laughs> the holidays.
0: You're starting your new...
5: Are you starting the year
0: with resolutions to be sure that you are healthier or, or more thoughtful? Or... Of course. So. And they
5: work usually just as little
0: as they do anywhere else. <laughs> Marian Krzkovic, I imagine when you get together with your friends, you raise a toast for the new year in your beautiful language, Croatian. Can you share that with our listeners across the United States? New Year's is approaching. Give us a toast and a, and a New Year's greeting from your country, Croatia.
5: Sretna Nova Godina, puno sreće i zdravlja u nove godini. And in English, what would that be? Uh, happy New Year, all the luck and good health in the upcoming year.
0: Different parts of the British Isles each have their own personality and their own customs surrounding the holidays. Martin Delandovich joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves. Martin's been raised with a deep love of the history and traditions of his homeland, Wales. How would you celebrate New Year's Eve in Wales?
6: New Year's Eve in Wales nowadays is uh, much done the same as it is elsewhere. We tend to have the fireworks. Fireworks at midnight. Uh, London's got uh, the uh, Trafalgar Square activities.
0: What is considered the cultural Trafalgar Square or Times Square of Wales? Is there something like that? Uh, you
6: get it in Cardiff. Down in Cardiff Bay, you get fireworks. Now, what's the drink of choice? Are people drinking wine or hard liquor or beer or what? Beer is the most popular drink, and, and, and sadly, I think so. Beer was, was sailing. Uh, which in Wales, the blessing of orchards for fruit coming, and that was done in beer. The other one that custom we got at New Year's in Wales was kalenig, or klenig, where groups of children would come to your house and, and you were supposed to give them money. They give what would they do in return? Would they sing? Would they? They would poems. There would be some singing. Uh, one of the old uh, Klen- young people come door to door reading, right. reciting poetry, yes, so yes. Welsh, and then
0: you you give them a present.
6: Yes. One of them is Tea, uh, and this is from South I'm I'm Pastum Gidami And what this is is um I got up early this morning, I got my stick and I got my bag and I came out and here's my message to you, fill my bag with bread and cheese. Fill <laughs> my bag with bread and cheese. Would bread and cheese satisfy the kids these days? Well no, I don't think so. Now in the United
0: States we uh dedicate the uh, first day of the year to overcoming the partying from the last
6: night and watching a great football game. What's, what's the activity on the first day of the year in Wales? You get New Year's rugby, because rugby ah. is the game, particularly in South Wales. Uh, there was a game... New Year's called, rugby. Is it sort of yeah. a, the big cup game then? Yeah. You, you get, on New Year's. It's, it's not the big cup games, but it's all over Christmas. On Boxing Day, the day after Christmas... And on New Year's Day, you get these rugby games. And in days gone by, and we're talking, oh, certainly recorded in the 17th century, there was a game called Knappan, which approximated to rugby, but it was played between whole villages. And they were, there were wow. horrible, bloody things where all you had to do was get this thing from one village to the other one to win. And, oh dear, broken bones, head throat. I love the way that every
0: culture celebrates the holidays a different way, and every culture has its own way to wish someone a happy Christmas and a beautiful new year. Wish me in Welsh a happy holiday.
6: And
0: specifically what was that? That was Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thanks, Martin.
6: Thank
7: you.
0: Another corner of Great Britain that's rich in New Year's traditions is Scotland. Anne Doig and Ken Hanley are joining us now to remind us of the delightful ways they, and their neighbours, bring in the New Year. Ann and Ken, thanks for being here.
1: You're very welcome. Thank nice you for I having work. us. For having are
0: us. you looking forward to New Year's in Edinburgh? <sighs> absolutely. Oh, absolutely. How do you celebrate New Year's Eve in Edinburgh? Uh,
8: very traditionally. I know we have what's said to be the biggest street party in the world, but, you know, if we're going for tradition, which I still do and Anne still does, then you make sure the house is clean. (laughs) So the house, in other words, has got to be clean. And you make sure that you've got enough drink for your friends and things like that. People go first-footing. And to go first-footing properly, you have to have a piece of black coal, a wee piece of cake, and a wee bottle of whiskey. What's first-footing? It goes, you go to friends, you just tap a door. You go visiting, and and they're not going to turn you away. Absolutely not. And I think if your first footer, traditionally in Scotland, is tall, dark and handsome, that means that you're going to have a year of good luck.
1: It's quite interesting. It has to be dark. And I wonder if anyone knows why it has to be a dark Mm. person. Dark It dates back to the attacks by the Vikings, the blonde, tall Vikings. If you're blonde, you might be a threat. So it had to be a dark person. And you open at the strike of midnight, you open your front door and rush through and open the back door. So you're welcoming in the new year and letting the old year out. So there's all these traditions that we adhere to.
0: <laughs> wow. Now, is there
1: something that is like a countdown in, in Edinburgh? It's fireworks, really. Yeah. There's a big street party, you see, so they'll be counting down on the stage. There are entertainers and oh, yeah. bands playing. And then oh, yeah. all of a sudden, there's an explosion of fireworks over Edinburgh Castle. With but the then backdrop. you get down with your neighbours and you open your front door. Absolutely. And you open the back door. Yes. yes.
8: Total strangers can turn up at your door. And, and everyone's and, uh, welcome. And everyone's welcome. And they come in and you offer a drink, you offer a piece of cake, you have a wee blether, you know, and then That's you move talk. along. And a wee
0: blether is a little <laughs> top. wee little, talk. Is a little <laughs> talk. Have a wee blether. And it then sort of
1: gets known in the community who's got open house. That's what happens. Okay. And if you've got open house, then everyone piles in to visit you. If you're
0: in Scotland on New Year's Eve, it's just like one big open house. People are on the streets, they've got their coal and their drink and their cake and they're going to yep. knock on a stranger's door and celebrate the New Year.
8: Absolutely.
0: We all sing "Old uh, Lang, Lang Syne." Yeah, yeah, yeah We that? do. That's oh, Scottish,
1: isn't it? Yes, uh, Robert Burns. That's yeah. Robert Burns. What, yeah. what does that
0: mean, "Old Lang Syne"?
1: For the sake of "Old Lang Syne," a lot of different interpretations. I would say for old friends, remembering, remembering friends for for friendship's sake. And you know the song. Sing the song for me.
8: It's uh, all sentimental. A uh, Song, all you know. all acquaintance be forgot and never brought to
1: mind?
8: Should all acquaintance be forgot for the sake of all lang syne? Now, here's the hand, my trusty friend, and here's the hand, oh mine. And it goes on. And that's you're all holding hands. It's this inbuilt thing in the Scots that. Uh, you know it's been great to see you we don't want to see you go but because you're going away for the sake of old Syne keep that memory keep everything that heartfelt so felt so thing so
0: that's, that's the true. that's the punchline of the lyric is for the sake, sake of old langzine the old, syne, the old good sake old, old times friends. yeah yes. <laughs> for the sake of old langzine happy new year
8: <laughs> happy, happy new year, new year to all you. the best to you happy <laughs> new year rick boy
5: Bye.
0: Our celebrations continue next on Travel with Rick Steves with the joy of fine wine, Spanish style. Then we find evidence of the conquests of Alexander the Great in Central Asia, evidence that just might help us understand the ancient world in a new light. We're at 877-333-RICK. We'll hear how a filming trek across a rarely visited region of Central Asia just might change how the world views the legacy of Alexander the Great. That's coming up in just a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, we're celebrating some of the pleasures of life Spanish-style. The wines of Spain are starting to get noticed for their quality and at prices that are competitive with the more established vintages from France and Italy. To help us find the perfect Spanish food and wine pairings, We're joined by two tour guides from Madrid, Nigel Morel and Javier Menor. Javier and Nigel, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Nigel, when you think about a tourist coming into Spain and wanting to appreciate the cuisine and the wine, what is a basic sort of advice you can give?
2: I think, first of all, to be patient, because I think we have high expectations. We go to the first bar or restaurant we see and oftentimes think we're picking something that looks appetizing. And we automatically base our experience on that first impression. And sometimes it's not always the best food. That happens in every country. Um, And I think it's good to be patient and also to ask for recommendations from perhaps the waiter or perhaps somebody they're eating at the bar or drinking. What do they like? And what do they like to pair it with? Because locals have been making these combinations for, for years.
0: Now, you're a sommelier in Spanish wine. Right. When you become a sommelier, are you specifically a,
2: have a forte like Spanish or French In this particular program, the focus was on Spanish wine. How would you distinguish Spanish wine from French and Italian? What's well, interesting because Spanish wine for years was really in the back seat. And Italian and French wine have always been quite well known. But finally, over the last two and a half decades, Spain has basically profited unlike no other nation in the wine scene. And this is not just my opinion, this is the opinion of several well-known wine critics in the world like Jancis Robinson, Robert Parker, and there's very simple reasons for that. Factors that have always been present are now being taken advantage of, such as the fact that Spain has more land under vineyard than any country in the world, and much of that land is old vines that have very low-yielding crops, and these produce very flavor-concentrated grapes, and also that Spain is the second highest nation in Europe after Switzerland, and this high elevation helps these grapes to fully ripen. And uh, even though we have extreme sun, and these mm. grapes would normally bake and have too high sugar levels, the higher elevation allows temperatures to cool off at night and maintain acidity. I never thought about that. But of course, Spain
0: is, is uh, geologically like an upside-down uh, cereal bowl or something, a high plateau There's a high plateau, with especially a in, steep cliff and then a exactly. lip near the ocean. So we
2: got uh, Spanish and French wines growing at lower altitudes, even though Spain is in the south. People don't think of Spain as being a very high country. And it's not to say we have the highest mountains. It's the highest average, exactly, elevation, where it's very common to have vines growing around 2,000 feet, 2,500 feet. And if you think of what's high in Napa Valley, maybe around 500 feet would be considered high.
0: Javier, when you think about Spanish wine, my sense is in the old days there was a lot of table wine, and uh, a country can get a reputation for having just good, solid table wine. But then it has to work to cut back on the quantity of production and cut up on the quality. Is that going on in Spain at all?
7: I think that technically that happened once we became part of the European Union. Quotas and all that. And that's why maybe going back to what Nigel said, we focused on quality. Instead of the quantity. Instead of the quantity. And that's why Spanish wines have improved a lot lately.
0: As a Spaniard, don't you get a, a sense that people are focused on French and Italian wines and Spain has to do some catching up in the marketing area? They
7: are until we give them a glass of Spanish wine and then we tell them, you know how much that bottle cost? Six bucks. And they go crazy. <laughs> no way. Wow. So you could
0: make a good case at the value if you oh, want to yeah, Let's
7: say 10 euros. That buys you an excellent Spanish wine. Uh, that's 13 or 14 dollars. Yeah. Then you get a good bottle of wine. Now,
0: we know Rioja. That's sort of the famous wine in Spain. Give me a, just a quick review of the regions and what other regions we might want to pay attention to and the importance of distinguishing between regions and grapes.
7: I could say the heap region should be the Rivera del Duero.
0: The Duero. So this is the the Duero River is the mm-hmm. one that goes down to Porto. Yes. And that's where we're famous for port in Portugal, but it extends into Spain.
7: Indeed. All right. And what kind of wine would we find there? I don't know. Maybe the word that comes to my mind is velvet. Velvet. Rivera del Duero is smooth. Is...
2: And Rivero, it's important to know that Rivera del Duero helped put Spanish wine on the map internationally. Because oh, okay. before that, people only knew Rioja. Mm-hmm. Right. And this was in the 1980s.
0: Nigel, you're from California. Can you pronounce that, that other wine in a way an American could understand? Uh,
2: so it'd be Rivera uh-huh. del Duero. Okay, Rivera del, del Duero. Duero. So exactly. that's an really
7: up and coming. Means uh, the Dodo bank Riverbank. Exactly. exactly. Okay,
0: the, the river bank of the Duero. Okay, exactly. so that's a good region.
7: Right. Uh, Javier, is there another region we should be aware of? Okay, I'm going to be experimenting here. Fierce wine called Toro. Toro. Toro is another experience. It's taking wine to a different level. This is bull? Toro? Yeah, it's Toro. Bull. Why do they call it Toro and where is that? Fierce wine. Strong, but extraordinary. A fierce wine. A fierce wine. Good. Uh,
0: Toro, Toro. And will I find that everywhere in Spain or where is that from?
2: It's actually becoming easier to find. Mm -hmm. But it's basically west of Ribeiro Duero. Okay. West and northwest. It's close to the border of Portugal. It's becoming easier to find within Spain and even outside of Spain because there have been some major cult wines coming out of Toro. I think it's a fun wine to try to experiment right. with. I'll
0: look for that. And it's actually called, the, the label says Toro.
7: Yeah. We'll recognize it. As well as Rioja wine. Hey, right. I want a Toro wine. And when we're thinking of wines, I mentioned earlier the importance of pairing. Nigel, you're a sommelier. How,
0: how important is it to know what food to enjoy with the wine? and And what's the concept of
2: terroir and matching regions and, right. and this sort of thing. So we could start with food and wine pairing in general. People have different arguments depending on which critic or sonomia you talk to. The I think the basic uh, argument, and I think the one that makes the most sense when you're at a uh, beginning level, is that regional specialties go together. Right. Being that if you're in, for example, uh, Castilla-Leon, which is the autonomous community, or st- we could say roughly state north of Madrid, they have specialties like roast suckling pig, right. which is in the area of Segovia. Just north of Segovia is the wine region, Ribera del Duero, which is the one we were referring to earlier. And there's some amazing wines that go perfectly well with Roast suckling Pig from that wine region.
0: And, and it makes a difference to you to, to consume the food and the wine, wine from together. the same region.
2: Does it really make a difference in the taste or is it just, does it feel right? Well, for me, it feels right, first yeah. of all. And keep in mind that these days, because modern winemaking has brought so many regions up to the same playing field, uh-huh. you could make an argument by saying, well, the wines from, for example, Toro are just as nice as the wines from Rivela Duero with Rose Suckling Pig. And the regions border each other, and that would make sense. But there's no sense of history behind having a wine from a different region, even though there might be similar characteristics, similar structure, similar you know, aromas. That
0: is interesting, because Europe has such a sense of history. And right. then, if you're tuned into that history and the the roots of the culture, there is a power to that, that Absolutely. we might not have here in the United States. Right. where you don't have that long history. Javier, when you're thinking of great wine, Talk a little bit
7: about great local ingredients. What, what is a nice uh, marriage, a nice pairing? Uh, if we talk about Spain and pairing, I can only think of seafood and albarino, which is northwest Galicia. That is the pairing. Really? Seafood and I don't know. a that, white wine? That's then? what comes to my mind. Yeah, albarino is a, is a white wine. Oh, okay. Fruity, fresh, cold. Yeah. Nice. And that goes really well with lobster, crab. All kinds of seafoods. Oh, um, this is uh, makes me want to go to
0: Spain. That's for sure, with an appetite and a thirst. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Javier Menor and Nigel Morrell. We're talking about Spanish wine and pairing it with uh, local specialties. Our phone number is eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five. And Stacy's calling in from Greensboro, North Carolina. Stacy, thanks for your call. Oh,
2: thanks, Rick. I was um, in Barcelona this last summer and enjoyed some tapas and cava but was wondering, I know with the seafood, maybe red's
1: not quite the thing, but is there a red wine recommendation?
2: I mean, really, the nice thing about Spain is you have a broad spectrum of reds, talking about in this particular case, from very light-bodied, soft-structure reds that are not very tannic to full-on, meaty, fleshy reds where you have extreme levels of tannin, of color extraction. And the tapas, obviously, you can go from the very lightest seafood style tapas to heavy meat style tapas, and and those would match all of the spectrums of wine I just mentioned. But um, cava, just to go back to what you mentioned earlier, is an excellent place to start for seafood like tapas, especially in Catalonia, because ninety-five percent of Spanish sparkling wine, which is cava, is actually from Catalonia. It's one of the things that I think one of the biggest misconceptions people assume that cava is drunk at the end of a meal as if some kind of dessert wine, and that's Mm. not true at all, especially in Catalonia where my my in-laws live. Um, There it's consumed as an aperitif and then as part of the meal just because it matches with so many of the different foods, especially from that part of the coast. And cava would be essentially champagne. Cava is the Spanish style of champagne. It's a bit different in the sense that it evolves more quickly in the bottle, Mm -hmm. and the aging times are shorter, but it is made following the traditional champagne method. And it's very much a wine in its own right. Unfortunately, Cava's been a victim of its own fame because it's the widest-selling sparkling wine in the world, outselling even champagne. From Catalonia. From Catalonia, exactly. All right.
0: Stacey, thanks for your call.
9: Thanks, Rick.
0: Yvonne's on the line in Grass Valley, California.
7: Yvonne, thanks for your call.
9: Hi. Um, I like Tempranillo, and I was wondering what region that comes from.
7: Tempranillo is um, by far the most uh, common grape we use in the red wines in Spain. It's red. I think that could be pretty much cover all of Northern Plateau, all of Northern Spain, Rioja, Rivera, those wines that are so famous. Most of the grape we used is the one called Tempranillo.
0: Now, how would that Tempranillo relate to famous grapes we know in Italy? Cabernet Sauvignon, or something like I that. I do it's know
7: that right now it's spread all over the world, but it's a
2: unique grape. It's a unique grape, so it's not just a Spanish name for a grape that appears. No, somewhere no, no, else. no, no. It's native. Like it's that. a native grape, and it goes uh-huh. by different names in Spain as well, which mm-hmm. is important. What Javier is saying is absolutely correct. It's found all over the country. Right. But depending on where you are, Tempranillo and Rioja, it'll be called Tinto Fino, close to Toro. So if I like and, a Rioja wine, it's probably with this. It
0: probably means I like that kind of grape. Grape,
2: exactly. Because I do like a Rioja wine, and that means I like the Tempranillo grape. Right, right. And this actually goes important to regions versus grapes. Talk about that a bit, please. Basically, in Europe in general, and especially in Spain, we don't order our wines by the grape. We order them by the regions. And so the problem is for newcomers is that they often don't know what grape is which region, and therefore if they're going to like that region or not. So you could say, give me a Tempranillo, and because it is, like Javier said, the most famous well-known grape, Every bar in the country will have a Tempranillo example. And
0: you may really be thinking, I want a Rioja. That's the Exactly. Area. And you may
2: get then a different region, and it's not what you thought you were exactly. ordering, even though it's the right grape. Because Spain is so diverse in its terroir that, which goes back to your earlier question, the Tempranillo in the north is very different from Tempranillo in Valdepeñas, hmm. in La Mancha, which is different from Tempranillo in Ribera Duero, hmm. And that's also why they have different names for the same grape, because it's adapted over time to the different climate, the different soil, and this is the whole idea behind terroir. So even though it is the same grape, it's been adapted over time to that particular microclimate. So Nigel, describe Terroir as a Spanish wine sumier. The idea behind Terroir is that your soil and your weather and even culture play a major role in what the final wine tastes like. So culture, what I mean by tradition, that is, exactly tradition, whether that's um, aging methods, mm-hmm. techniques cropping uh, of course the harvest how it's picked and then the processing of the wine this all plays a major role i mean of course we think of the romantic side of terroir of being with the weather patterns and especially the soil mm-hmm. but i think it's all of it combined and that's yeah, see, why... to
0: me the weather and the soil that's sort of clinical and when right. you factor in the culture and exactly the love Absolutely. And the history Absolutely. and the
7: tradition that's where i get all romantic about my wine Javier, what's your thoughts on that? I was just thinking, that's why the pairing goes often with the region. Yeah, regional food with regional right. wine because why should you not do that? It's it, just right. it, it just feels right. It feels right. 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 Right.
0: right. I mean, to get what people are enthusiastic about mm-hmm. locally, you can be sipping this wine and you can be looking on the hillsides right. at the crops. And, yeah, you and, can
7: see the vineyards and the peaks. And it, the peaks. <laughs> and you're drinking. <laughs> it's all Come there in the same on. hill.
0: Ivan, you're getting us all excited with your question. Thanks for calling
9: didn't know we was to throw up that much action. <laughs> thank, thank
0: you. <laughs> All right. Happy travels and, and happy enjoying your wine and your good food in Spain.
9: Thank you. I'm
0: looking forward to it. Great. This is Travel with Rick Steves and every week we take you to an exciting place and delve into that culture so we can better appreciate it. We're joined today by Nigel Morell and Javier Menor. We're talking about Spanish wine. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Lisa's on the line in Eureka, California. Yes, hello. Hello.
9: Hi, I'm, I'm listening with great interest to all of this. And it was in the 70s when I was a, a college student in Granada that I was introduced to wine. And the only thing, I knew nothing about wine. The only thing I, I found out at that time was in Spain, there was a vino tinto and a vino blanco.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Red wine, and that's, white wine. That's the wine. beginning. Exactly.
0: But let's talk about that a little bit, Lisa, because from my experience, your vocabulary is very powerful in getting a better glass of wine. And if you go into a bar, and let's just say we're not doing anything fancy, we're just going to a bar and having a sandwich and we want a glass of wine with it, even house wine or something, you can ask for a vino tinto or you can go a little bit better and then your your bill's going to go from
2: $2 to $3, Right. Crianza, for instance, what what does that mean, Javier, or or Nigel? Crianza is the first level within Spain's aging system. So we have Crianza, and then we have Reserva, and then we have Gran Reserva. And what's important to point out here is that in the United States and California, where I'm from, Reserve has no legal backing. People can use it to mean their special wine, but in Spain, there's a very specific set of laws that determine what can be called these three levels. The first, for example, is simply the wine has to be aged a minimum of two years. And out of those two years of Crianza, six months have to be in oak barrels. For Reserva, it's three years, and one year in oak barrels. And Gran Reserva, it's five years. And that makes a difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, if
0: Lisa's going into a, a bar in some small town in Spain, and, right. and, you know, like me, she'd probably say vino tinto. She wants right. a glass
2: of red wine. Right. It would behoove her to know a couple more words. Absolutely, because it would depend on the bar, and if it's the typical bar in Spain, um, they would probably just give her a Rioja Crianza. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing, mm-hmm. but she may have a desire to experiment with other wines, and so it's helpful to have this vocabulary.
7: Actually, when you walk into a bar, you get—you always say, uh, can I have a Rioja, please? Can I have a Ribera, please? So you name the region, right. and that will be the wine served.
2: Okay, right. but do you get different kinds of Rioja if you say Reserva or crienza or... You do, and it depends on... Exactly. It will depend on what the bar has opened by the glass, too. Ah, And you have to keep in mind that Gran Miservas, being the top level, are quite expensive.
0: So if you appreciate it... uh, For me, a lot of times, life's too short to drink mediocre wine, especially when you have 10 (laughs) days in Spain. You don't want to have a mediocre wine at at your meal. And you might want to choose a bar that has more bottles open, just so there's more options. If it's a
7: wine bar, you have more options. And uh, may I say, for those of you who are going to go to Spain... We use the word bar often, but bar is a simple place. It's what here could be a coffee shop, a cafeteria. For us, a bar is a family place. You go eat, you go drink, you go spend some time. So it's nothing hardcore. Nothing hardcore. You mean yeah. it's, it's uh, like uh, inviting? Like a bar in it's a, we would say a tavern
0: or something. Yeah, yeah that's right. This
7: is uh, inviting.
0: It's mm-hmm. a, uh, it can be for the family. It can right. be yeah, productive. we use that word a lot. Bar, but it's a simple that's place.
9: True.
2: It's not a place that people just go to have drinks. Lisa, any other thoughts or comments?
9: Well, I'm, I wrote down your quote: "Life's too short to drink a mediocre wine," and I will remember that. I'm realizing I must have been having a tempranillo with this fino tinto, just a generic term. But I will remember Rioja and Ribera and when I'm really hoping for a grand night, a gran reserva.
0: Ah, you got Mm -hmm. it. All right. Lisa, (laughs) you're a great student of Spanish culture right there. Have a good time on your next trip.
9: Thank you. Bye.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Nigel Morel and Javier Menor about fine wines and appreciating fine wines in Spain. Nigel and Javier, muchas gracias. And I'll see you in Spain, and we'll enjoy a little bit of Gran Reserva. Absolutely. Okay. His series of treks through some of the world's roughest terrain resulted in a fresh look at Alexander the Great in lands where traces of the world from 23 centuries ago can still be detected if you know what to look for. Australian photojournalist David Adams joins us next to describe the adventure he had filming a travel special in the highlands and dusty plains of Afghanistan and its neighbors. We explore Alexander's lost world. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. When photojournalist David Adams heard that the Wakhan Corridor in northeast Afghanistan was being reopened to foreigners after a hundred years, he just knew he had to travel there. It's where a river that's reputed to have been one of the four rivers of the Garden of Eden forms the border between Afghanistan and Tajikistan. Today, it's in some of the most inhospitable desert territory anywhere on Earth, and it includes areas controlled by the Taliban. Over a period of nearly six years, David Adams and his film crew journeyed into this rarely seen terrain in what turned out to be a journey in the steps of Alexander the Great. The remains of forgotten civilizations showed David that the mythology of Alexander's exploits back in the 4th century B.C. might do with a little update, and even how after Alexander opened up trade routes between the West and Asia, the great conqueror of the Persians ended up mired in Afghanistan. David Adams' journeys are now released in a six-episode video series called Alexander's Lost World, and he joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to take us behind the scenes of his extraordinary adventure. David, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks so much. It's a great pleasure.
0: David, you spent six years making uh, this series, Alexander's Lost World. Why Alexander the
3: Great? What inspired you to follow his trail? You'd do anything for six years, and I think you'd have to say it's a labor of love or you're crazy— It's certainly not for the money. But it actually began because in northern Afghanistan, there's a place called the Wakhan Corridor, which is a panhandle of Afghanistan, leads up into the Pamirs and borders, Pakistan, Tajikistan, and and China. And that only opened in 2004 and had been closed for 100 years. I'd been to Afghanistan a number of different times covering different journalistic things and and their conflict. And it was a place that I really wanted to go to. Mm -hmm. And as I started researching it, I realized that by virtue of no one being there for 100 years, No one had ever followed the Oxus River, which is today called the Amudaria, which is effectively the northern border of Afghanistan that flows pretty well to the Aral Sea. As I began researching, I realized that no one, therefore, had actually followed that river all the way to its source. And as we got deeper into it, it then unfolded these incredible civilizations that go back to 6,000 BC, so 8,000 years old. Now, these are the civilizations that Alexander didn't
0: discover. He stumbled upon that were um, arguably as sophisticated and civilized as he was.
3: Well, that's exactly it. And Alexander then really became the linchpin because um, it was so obscure and so remote that to try and tell a story about you know, an undiscovered civilization, is, it's quite hard to get that through to the public. How come we didn't know about this, was what people said to me. So Alexander bound <laughs> it all together for us. That's what I thought as I
0: was watching your series. And just to give our listeners a little context, Alexander, uh, of course, he was from Macedonia. He came down and what took over uh, classical Greece and then gave it sort of the power of the sword. And he took the Greek culture and effectively in his short lifetime spread it all the way from Greece to uh, the border of India. Is that right?
3: exactly and i mean i think uh, people are endlessly fascinated by alexander because of you know the the enormity of what he achieved in such a short time And effectively changed the world. I mean, today, you know, Greek culture, you you can see in those beautiful dancing girls on the stone walls of temples in Cambodia actually have Greek drapery. Mm. That all comes through from the effect of Greco-Bactrian influence. So he gave them the Greek culture, the Greek language, uh,
0: the the Greek religion, Greek architecture. Is that right? When he died, he was in his early 30s, there were Greek temples stretching all the way to India.
3: I suppose this is the the thing that we explore is that has been the popular position, that there was therefore this sort of an incredible cultural change. But what really happened, and when you start peeling it back, you realize that a lot of the things that were there in Asia were very similar to the way that the Greeks thought. I mean, for instance, their pantheon of gods really mirrored the Greeks. So for the mm. Greeks to then come to Bactria, they could actually pick a river goddess that matched you know, a Greek water goddess, and it, it dovetailed incredibly well. What academics now believe is that the influences, those early sort of cultural, religious foundations actually emanated out of this region to Europe. And Mm. so what Alexander was doing in a new form was actually bringing it back. So it melded so easily because it was so similar.
0: So this was sort of a very early, early opening of the world, and we think of it in our Eurocentric way that Alexander was bringing civilization to them, but in actuality, he was just opening up a, a little floodgate of cultural exchange in both directions, and not bringing civilization, but at most conquering existing
3: ones? Exactly. There's quite a misnomer about you know these, these incredible cities that Alexander was supposed to have built. Right. But what we we discover in the series is that you know he really was fighting you know as 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 everybody has found when you get mired in Afghanistan the date is the what 323 BC that's when he died he dies 323 BC and he leaves Greece um 334 BC but doesn't actually get to Bactria until 329 in the spring of 329 and in your work, uh,
0: David, you were finding civilizations and the remains of cities that went back centuries and centuries before that, actually.
3: You know, there's an amazing archaeologist who's just recently died called Victor Sarianidi. In the 70s and 80s, he discovered these incredible cities in Turkmenistan, uh, you know, basically along the same river system, mm-hmm. but further, further down it. They realized that going back to about 2200 B.C., that there were these you know, major city-states with, with big fortress cities that were far greater, the equal of the Tigris, Euphrates and Mesopotamia, with really developed cultures. Because before then, everybody just thought that everybody who lived up there were steppe nomads and running around on horses and you know, with war chariots. But this changed the way people thought, and, and it still does. It increasingly, I think, is redefining the way that we think our culture uh, began.
0: David Adams is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He journeyed 1,500 miles to find traces of the lost world of Alexander the Great, even if those traces happen to be in the war zones of Afghanistan. The TV special of David's Trek is called Alexander's Lost World, and it's distributed by Athena at acornonline.com. What is the route that you followed? You you went from Greece, uh, what, about 4,000 kilometers to the east... What would the route that Alexander took 300 years before Christ and that you took in the last uh, decade?
3: Uh, Alexander's route was, was quite circuitous. You know, he, he leaves and, and fights through Turkey and then down through the Holy Lands and takes Egypt and, and then eventually heads right up to the Caspian Sea and then comes down again to the bottom of Afghanistan. And that all takes a couple of years. We, we actually begin in Greece, but then we pick him up basically as he enters Central Asia. And um, we begin on the shores of the Caspian uh, in Turkmenistan. And then we look at the connections to these ancient civilizations. And then we find um, Alexander when he enters Afghanistan. Okay. So basically, you, you traveled from Greece to Afghanistan. And,
0: you know, David, I was so struck by the abundance of ancient sites. I was recently in Iran heading down to Persepolis, and I expected to see Persepolis. But all along the way, whenever we pulled off the road, you look around and look carefully. And there are the scant remains of amazing cities, most of them fortified everywhere you look. The feeling I got from watching your series was all across Central Asia, uh, there were fortified cities and and quite magnificent cities.
3: Exactly. And, and, you know, it's one of the most exciting things about traveling in those areas. And uh, Iran, I was recently in about two years ago. And, you know, it's a joy to travel in Iran for lots of different reasons, but um, particularly that ability to just, you know, you're overwhelmed by the amount of archaeology. And Afghanistan, particularly, and also, you know, the former Soviet republics, they're just awash with unexplored, almost everything we saw in the series and traveled to in Afghanistan mm-hmm. has only had a small amount of archaeology done.
0: It's completely overlooked. My business is travel, and I'm interested in what guidebooks tell people to go where. And this whole idea of ancient sites between Greece and India, uh, through Central Asia, through the stands, is just uh, really an eye-opener. You must be something of an archaeologist and a historian, judging from the uh, beautiful coverage of the history and the architecture and so on that you included in your TV show. Were you struck that the people there had any appreciation of the rich history that was all around them, or or were they just uh, goat herders, uh, oblivious to the fact that they were sitting in the middle of uh, a, an incredible city from 3,000 years ago?
3: Generally, you have—and Afghanistan, again, is different because it really comes down to education— there is a general pride from everybody's point of view that um, they live in history, but most of it pertains back to either their family history or then it gets sort of short-circuited and um, they sort of have a living connection with Alexander. So every, mm. every hill is an Alexander fortress. In Afghanistan, the word they use is Kala, which ah. is, you know, unbelievers' fortress or unbelievers' fort, and everything is a Kafir Kala unless someone has given it another name for because something happened there.
0: So they know and appreciate their Alexander heritage.
3: They do. They yeah. do. They
0: called him Ixander. Ixander, yes. David Adams' journeys are captured on a six-episode DVD series called Alexander's Lost World. It's distributed in the U.S. by Athena at acornonline.com. David, let's just talk nitty-gritty for a minute. I was noticing uh, the trucks on the road. It seems like a different economy. There was not much on the road except for trucks. What was it like driving through all of these, Tajikistan and, uh, and Turkmenistan and so on?
3: There is a lot of trucking because obviously there, there are railways, but it's, most of the transport's done that way. Um, you know, they're not wealthy economies, so certainly people have cars, but it's not what, how we would think in the West. No, it's, it's certainly more Spartan. Turkmenistan is a very different environment to Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, um, Kazakhstan, which are, you know, I think much more modern. I think uh, Turkmenistan is a case in itself. It's like a time capsule. Um, Very beautiful. And I would encourage anybody to travel to Turkmenistan because it it is fabulous. But it is is different. Yeah, you, you mentioned it was one of the strangest places on the planet. How so? It's a dictatorship, and it passes from from one you know former KGB to another. Mm. Um, you know, I say that with respect to Turkmenistan, but the the whole capital city Ashgabat is white, and the former dictator built all his buildings uh, in white stone. And so, uh, you know, there's about eight skyscrapers, and then these amazing kind of uh, Soviet era, but but recently built mm-hmm. type public spaces. So it's a time capsule back to the Soviet time, but because of their incredible uh, wealth in gas resources, they have an enormous amount of money out on the Caspian Sea. They're building effectively a new Dubai. Hmm. They're, they're putting these, in, you know, these hotels and everything on the Caspian Sea for, you know, a Russian market.
0: What kind of welcome did you find in, in these remote places? Because I can't imagine there's a lot of tourism here, and any Westerner that stumbles in is probably quite a quite a spectacle.
3: There are organized, you know, I think with Central Asian travel companies, you can organize to go to Turkmenistan. It's um, you know, more difficult. They have mm-hmm. kind of funny rules about where you can enter and how long, and they've got some strange transit visas, that sort of thing. But the welcome is, is incredible. If you think Italians without um, the wine, I guess.
0: <laughs> Italians <like it's> without <laughs> the fine wine. Well, that's nice. I I think that uh, there's not a lot of tourism infrastructure like we'd be used to in in Europe or Australia or something like that. But it it's certainly doable if somebody wants to. Is there information for travelers?
3: Yeah, very much. Um, and the way it's it tends to be done is it's um, you have a guide and a car and a driver that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. it's a very very safe place. You know, the fortress like defences of the Turkmen Afghan border are really impressive. Not a lot mm-hmm. of people cross that border. There is a 50-foot minefield uh, that stretches. I Mm. think it's one of the longest minefields in the world. And then barrier fencing and guard posts within sight all along its sort of 1,500-kilometer border. Now, you mentioned a driver and a guide, and that's interesting because I was just in Egypt,
0: and for me it felt very comfortable and not reckless at all to go there. But I did have a driver and I had a guide. And some people might think that's extravagant, but it's not much more than what you'd spend to have a vacation in London, really, to have a driver and a guide. In a lot of these countries, would that be a prerequisite for traveling in, in a place like uh, Turkmenistan, would you say?
3: Look, I think so. One of the great pleasures in these countries is staying and meeting local communities and, and often staying in homestays, which, you know, a lot of people might find kind of strange. But from a cultural point of view, these cultures are so welcoming. They ho- They have a culture of hospitality. And so... You know, the accommodation is very cheap. Um, There certainly are good hotels that you can stay in of Mm -hmm. a, a, say, let's say, three, four-star standard in in places like Ashgabat. But um, what the driver and the guide particularly does is facilitate that. He takes you out to a desert community and, you know, you can go and stay in a yurt, that sort of thing. So it's a wonderful experience. In your show, you got a
0: shave. And it reminded me when I was in Turkey during some political dicey times, we had… Every year you'd go to Turkey and one minute you'd say you're from America, they would say good friend, next minute they'd say fascist imperialist, you know. And I was uh, <laughs> sitting in a barber shop in eastern Turkey and the man had the, the big straight razor that he would sharpen by, on the belt and then he'd tilt my head back and he would make sure I had a very close shave on my neck. I saw you did the same thing in. Uh, were you in Afghanistan when you got your shave on the show?
3: Yes, yes. That yeah. was in um, Mazar Sharif.
0: What were you thinking there? You're, in a, you're a Westerner you're in, and you're going under the blade, and this guy, you don't know who he is, and one little sneeze in, in your history.
3: I think that's kind of the point is that, that if you bear yourself and, and you're open and honest, you know, Afghans like people the world over. Everybody really just wants peace and, you know, their yeah. family to be fine and all that sort of thing. I mean, the way we traveled in Afghanistan was utilizing the existing system of the old term, I think, is surinti, which is, you know, there's a big man or the governor, and if the if the governor says, yes, you can travel, then you've got his sort of overlordship. If I, as a Westerner, get killed under his care, mm. then he's not a big man. Ah, so that's good to know. if you're a Westerner and you don't have a gun everybody has sort of an open question, is what the hell are you doing here? You know? <laughs> yeah. But they don't have an aggressive position. There's and, nothing
0: aggressive, yeah. Yeah,
3: and, and the culture says, you know, come in, let's have tea, let's talk well, about it. In the Muslim faith, when
0: there's a visitor, it's a gift from God, and, and I've found they treat you that way, but I suppose if you have a gun, it puts you in a different category. Completely different. Uh, this is uh, Travel with Rick Steves, and we've been talking with David Adams. Uh, his TV series is Alexander's Lost World. Look for it on public television. Also, the DVD is available through Athena. Uh, David, I was very struck uh, because you were digging so deeply into this archaeology and and this Alexander sort of history that you took a lot of um, archaeological suppositions with suspicion uh, as if they weren't the gospel truth, even though it was uh, conventional to just accept these these stories and and these explanations. You found that a lot of accepted archaeological, quote, facts were actually unreliable and, and just threw them out. Talk about how you're able to confirm or or disprove archaeological facts that other people accepted.
3: It's lovely being a journalist, you know, or a writer or a filmmaker, rather than an archaeologist. And they have to obviously follow very long protocols. You know, if you if you dig a trench and you find something, then mm-hmm. you know you, you in situ, then it, it takes you ten years before you publish. And you know, by that time, someone's found something else. It must be one of the most frustrating professions in the world, mm. I think. And you have to be endlessly patient.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: My my ability, and and any layman's ability, is that you can dive into a subject and bring all the contemporary discoveries reports together. Mm. Um, we were obviously advised by we actually have a, a Cambridge professor who who was steering us to a large degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and his position is, look, Dave, I can't say this because I would have to then document it and prove it and, and follow it, but. Our best guess is that this is the case. And so, we, my remit is that I'm wanting to tell people how exciting this is and mm-hmm. that, you know, this discovery or that discovery is a distinct possibility. You know, that said, the old thinking was everybody just wanted to find Alexander and the Greeks. So, archaeology all the way through to the mid 80s was a situation of let's get money, go to Afghanistan, dig a hole down to the Greek level and stop. <laughs> and no one no one thought that there was any civilization there before the Greeks because, that's logically, it, the Greeks the, brought it. That's the radical So they difference. didn't dig any further. Yeah. You weren't wearing the blinders that everybody who was just
0: thinking the Greeks were the end-all were wearing. So you spent six years on this quest for Alexander's lost world. What was your mission, just in a nutshell? And, and to wrap things up, did you accomplish your mission? What, you know, Why do we care? So what? Why did you do this, and, and was it worth the trouble?
3: Well, I I think, overall, Afghanistan is... An incredibly rich place, um, it, a tragedy because of the war and the destruction. But it is, from my point of view, kind of the navel of our cultural heritage. Everything has passed through in and around Afghanistan. And the archaeology there is there to show it. Hmm. Um, the point of the series was, even though the war is there and we recognize it and travel through it, was that this is an incredible, valuable part of our heritage. And we need to understand that Afghanistan needs to be preserved, helped, and brought into a peaceful future. It has incredible natural resources that can benefit everybody, particularly the Afghans. But to open up these places so people can come and enjoy them and actually discover more and more about who we are, because mm-hmm. if you if you go back right back to DNA, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and, and the connections of seventy percent of the of the men living in England actually can trace their their heritage back to Afghanistan.
0: Wow. David Adams, you have, in your documentary series, Alexander's Lost World, I think you have accomplished that mission. It's a, Even if we can't travel there, we can certainly watch your series. Thank you for this work. It's just been a, a beautiful thing to watch and, and fun to talk to you.
3: Thank you. Me too. A great pleasure.
0: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to ABC Sydney for their help this week. There's more each week in the radio section of ricksteves.com where you can listen again whenever you like. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick
3: Steves. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. Choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.